Well, what exactly do you think about when you see, for example, uh, somebody wearing a necklace with a cross or a shirt with a cross, or if you began to just sit and focus a little bit on the concept of either the Christian faith or, or Jesus in general, I guess the question would be is what exactly do you see in, or what is your view regarding Christ and the cross? It's kind of a loaded question really depending on who you are and where you come from because what somebody thinks about the cross or what they think about Jesus specifically has a whole lot to do with their understanding of who Jesus was and why He came and why He died. It has a lot to do with uh, what His death, what their view is, is regarding what His death meant to humanity, what or who their standard of morality is, what or who their standard of authority is. Ultimately, what they believe about salvation, what they believe about an eternity in a place called heaven and or hell. And you begin to take all of that and you begin to realize that people are so different with so many different beliefs then you have to ask those different individuals and groups, what is your view on Christ? What is your view on the cross? And you'll find that it varies greatly. And even the examples within our scriptures show that it, it does vary greatly. When you begin to think a little bit about Paul, born a Jew, raised a Jew, living as a Jew, he gets to the point where in his life when he looks at the cross, Specifically, the cross means something to him. It brings him purpose. It brings him direction regarding his life. In 1 Timothy 1, 12-13, Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Again, when we go back and we look at who Paul was, and, and he probably at the time thought, okay, I'm on the right path, right? I know exactly where I'm going. But Paul shows us that now because of the cross, his whole direction and his whole purpose in life has changed. In essence, he was a new man because of the cross. And yet, when you begin to look at Paul, who I would say was probably the hardest worker maybe we've ever seen within the Christian faith, he didn't glory in himself. He didn't glory... He didn't glory in the things that he had accomplished. Matter of fact, in Galatians 6.14, he writes, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now again, Paul now has, new, he has a new purpose. He has a new direction. He's part of something greater than of himself. I think oftentimes in this world, people get so focused on themselves that they begin to lose focus that there is something much greater than, than themselves out there. And that's, again, that's something Paul would have had to have dealt with. Paul looked at Jesus. He looked at the cross as the very basis of who he was, the, the basis, the foundation of his faith. Galatians 2.20, <clears throat> I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus dying on the cross. It is an integral part of who Paul is. Paul sees Jesus, he sees his doctrine as the entirety of his life, of his preaching. Matter of fact, 
In 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see the focus that Paul has for what he's doing because of the cross. You see his zeal because of the cross. And what is interesting with Paul, and he's not the only one, we have many examples who were like Paul. We have many examples today who were like Paul. But at his time there in the first century, he saw something and not only saw it, but was willing to accept something that for everybody else was so hard to comprehend, to grasp, to overcome. Listen to what we find in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 23. And, and consider the world around him, but also consider the fact that our world is much the same way. He says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Let me pause for a second. Paul heard an awful lot of that preaching before he ever became a Christian. You don't think for a second he didn't understand about the, the gospel being proclaimed and the church being established and growing? Of course he did. He goes on, verse 22, For the Jews require a sign, that's coming from a former Jew, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. This is coming from a Jew who grew up in a Greek society originally, and, uh, and he was very familiar with their background. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. Now, as I proclaimed a little bit, or thought a little bit about this, as, as to what he's proclaiming here, seems very similar today as to what we find when we go back and we look at the first century. You've got a number of people who are stumbling at the message of the cross. And I would go so far as to say it's the exact same thing today as it was then. It's too hard to comprehend. It's too hard for me to even believe that something like that took place. It's too different from the cultural standard that I'm being raised in today. What you're saying is too, it's too far off from where our standard of morality is. It's too hard to accept. How about this one? It's too different from the religious group or the religious teachings in which I was raised. And so for all those reasons, many people begin to look at the cross with different types of viewpoints. Some were drawn to it. Others were repulsed by it or repelled from it. But again, the reasons are the same. And here's the thing. Paul overcame every one of these challenges or these hindrances that we're talking about. All changed because of the cross. What are some of the other human perspectives we have regarding Jesus or the cross? Now, I could have listed a bunch more. I think there's a few that I would have specifically have liked to have gone back and focused on. Guys like Nicodemus and so forth. Let's, look at, let's begin to look at some of the people noted within our Scripture and see what their view was of Jesus and or the cross. Let's talk about Judas for a minute. What did Judas, what did he see in Christ? What did he see in the cross? Well, we'll touch what he saw on the cross because he didn't see that take place. But let's go back to the very beginning in John chapter 12 because we begin to learn an awful lot about Judas from the very outset of his association with Jesus. We know that Judas was a thief. And he sees an opportunity to, to continue to be a thief. John 12, verses 4 through 6. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Let me pause for a minute. Man, here's somebody who's really asking a valid question. Why aren't we using this money to help the poor? What a sincere question. Until you go on and read verse 6. This he said 
Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and he bare what was put therein. Here's what's really sad as I thought about that this weekend. Stealing money from the poor. I find it interesting, a lot of people can justify stealing money from the rich, right? They have plenty, they don't need it. I don't know anybody that would try to justify stealing money from the poor. And here you, you have Judas, this shows you a lot about his character, asking why, not, why, why the, the oil there wasn't being sold for money to give to the poor, and yet you find out the reason he's even asking the question is because he's a thief, and he's taking what's in the, in the bag there. Well, he wasn't just a thief during Jesus' ministry. He's actually going to look at Jesus as another opportunity to make some unscrupulous money. He's willing to hand him over. Which, as I think about it, you've been with Jesus as a disciple now throughout his ministry. And you would go and you would look at literally using that relationship as a chance to make money. Listen to what we find in Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, he went unto the chief priests. So they haven't, even, they haven't called him. He's going there on his own accord. And he said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted, or negotiated, with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Well, he's already been... Uh, He's already been thieving or stealing from the bag. And now he has opportunity to go and to betray his Lord and Savior. And you may be saying, I can't believe that anybody would look at Christ as an opportunity to make money. Why don't you turn on the TV and look at some of the televangelists that we have on TV nowadays. There are an awful lot of people who look at Christ, the cross, Christianity in general as an opportunity to make money. It's not a whole lot more than that. And that's really what we've got going on with, with Judas. And here's the thing, his, his conscience was literally overburdened by the fact that he had betrayed our, intimate, our innocent Messiah for what? 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27, starting in verse 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, what do you mean? Well, everybody else is condemning him for what he's done. He repented himself, and he brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. You know, I, I start off by saying, what did, Jesus, what did Judas see in Jesus in the cross? Well, he, he saw an opportunity to make... Um, gain in an in a, um, unscrupulous, sinful way, what did he see in the cross? Nothing. He never saw Christ die on the cross, and he never saw Christ resurrect from the dead. And the reason was is because after he betrayed our Lord and Savior for money, he then went out and did something which is unspeakable. Because of his worldly guilt, he went out and he killed himself. So he never saw the resurrection. What about the Jewish authorities? Well, there's an awful lot we can learn about the Jewish authorities, especially when we begin to consider the religious group we live in, uh, the religious world and culture we live in today. The Jewish authorities, they looked at the cross as something extremely profitable. It was a way for them to silence Jesus. It was 
It was a way for them to stop his success in the religious environment around them. And you may say, why would they even want to do that? Well, there were an awful lot of people who were believing in Jesus, and they were losing control of the masses. Going over to John chapter 11, and you guys will see exactly when this takes place. We have the account here where Lazarus has been dead, and in front of everybody, <laughs> he's going to bring Lazarus back to life. How do, you, how do you dispel that rumor going around? Yeah, the guy was dead and Jesus just spoke his name and he's alive again. Clearly, this guy's the Messiah, right? Verse 43, John, 12, uh, John 11, verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about him with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto, unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on Him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees, and they told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, what do, we, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men who believe on, will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest the same year, said unto them, Ye know, ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death." Jewish authorities, what's the cross? Well, it's a way to deal with a problem. Everybody saw what he did. He's doing miracles. The masses are, are being drawn to Jesus. They're starting to follow him. John 12, 19, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. And so after he raises Lazarus from the dead, they begin to plot his death. To them at first... The cross really meant a way to stop Jesus' ministry, to stop His influence. However, the cross afterwards creates a dilemma. And I say that because after the resurrection, they've got to answer the question, who, who was this guy? Was He the Messiah or was He not? How come there's no body? And so initially the cross was a great thing. Here's, here's how we get rid of our problem child. Here's how we deal with him. And then afterwards, well, now they're stuck in another dilemma. Where's the body at? Or was he in fact the Messiah? And so for those in that group, the Jewish authorities, their view of Jesus is going to depend on which side they took. He was the Messiah. No, he wasn't. Let's talk about Pontius Pilate for a few minutes. I'll give you a little bit of information about Pontius Pilate as we begin to look at his view of Jesus and the cross. His view of the cross would change over time. Initially, I don't think he thought there would be a Jesus hanging on a cross when it first started. And I don't think that was his ultimate goal. However, he had an issue and he needed self-preservation. And so his view would change. Pontius Pilate was in charge. He had an extremely prominent position. 
Uh, however, the Jews didn't care for him. He spoke very badly about the Jews as a whole. They were accused of a number of things, some of them true, some of them not. He ran uh, an administration of pure corruption, violence, robberies. He treated the people horribly. And not only that, he had a problem with Emperor Tiberius. And here's why. Pilate had a good friend, and this good friend actually helped him get this role under Tiberius. Well, a little bit later, this gentleman, who is a friend of his, he tried, he actually killed Tiberius' son, and then he tried to kill Tiberius himself. And so, Pilate's friend, who got him the job, tried to kill the emperor's son and tried to kill the emperor. And then he just disappears from the scene. Well, from that very moment on, the emperor then looked at Pilate with a lack of trust. Because if Pilate is the friend of the guy who just killed my child and tried to kill me, what are the odds that this guy is maybe in cahoots with him? And so the emperor has suspicion on, on Pilate. And so Pilate, already being accused of being unscrupulous, and causing a number of problems and being charged with being unable to quell the, uh, the religious environment there uh, within the city, he's worried about a riot. So what is it that Pilate would do to an innocent man to stop a riot which may take place? Listen to Luke 23 verses 4 through 7. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man, the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. So here's the thing. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he's in a bind. He can't afford for there to be a riot because he's already in trouble with the emperor. And so he's going to yield to the pressure. Notice John 19, 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Okay, we learned, we learned very quickly his view on, on Jesus and the cross. It starts off with him not desirous to kill this man. But notice this. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. So initially, his view was he doesn't need to be on a cross, and this guy hasn't caused really any issues that he's guilty of, and yet the Jews start calling him a traitor, and he's already in trouble with the emperor. Self-preservation, what am I going to do? Matthew 27, 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. See, he thought that that would be enough, right? I'll just wash my hands of it. It's not going to cause an issue. I'm willing to kill Jesus to protect myself. I can't have a riot. There's already a number of issues with me regarding the emperor, and so I can't, I can't make Tiberius upset or let him get word of this. Mark 15, 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Yeah, I can't, I can't have a riot going on. And the tradition of the people is to always give to, one, to give one person back, and he wanted to give them Jesus, and they said, no, give us Barabbas. And so he does. He literally sacrifices Jesus to save himself. Here's what's interesting. 
You won't find this in your Bible, but if you go back and do some, lo do some looking within the historical records, Josephus, he actually spent some time talking about how the fact that Pontius Pilate was actually called back to Rome to answer for a number of the actions that he had been accused of. Now, um, the emperor Tiberius had actually died and a new emperor had come into place. And so he's got to come back to Rome and answer questions about what's going on. Uh, and here's what happens. Yeah, he kills himself before that all takes place. The man who was so worried about self-preservation that he would condemn an innocent man is recorded in our history books as committing suicide. And so why, why would he have Jesus killed? Well, it was all for nothing. He was trying to content the people. And then I began to think about that. Do we have that today? Yeah, you've got people today who will either reject uh, Christ or, or do things contrary to the will of Christ or Christianity in order to maintain relationships with friends, family members, maybe to salvage marriages. Self-preservation. That's exactly what Pontius Pilate did. Pilate shows us the danger in allowing peer pressure to affect our decisions regarding Christ. For many today, when they look at the cross, their thoughts about Jesus, the way that they interact, much of that is based on self-preservation. What about the soldiers? Most of us know the majority of these accounts as we go back. The soldiers are an interesting group. They saw the cross really as a form of entertainment. These guys are amongst the most well-trained as far as how to bring someone to death. Extremely well-trained uh, members of the military. And we find that they are using Jesus as a form of their entertainment. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't recognize Him as a king. Instead, what they're going to do is they're going to use this as an opportunity for them to have a little bit of fun as they go out and they embarrass a defenseless person. Listen to Luke 23, 11. And Herod, with his men of war, which is what they are, set him at naught, and they mocked him. And they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him again to Pilate. Now notice Matthew 27, 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall, and they gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him, and they put on a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him. And they took the reed, and they smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Degrading him and mocking him and making fun of him for their own personal benefit and fun. Uh, guys, initially at this point, dying on a cross means nothing to them. They have put many people to death. Uh, and it's, Guys, they've gotten to the point where they're so calloused that they could literally mock and degrade a pure, innocent person and not see an issue with it. And I'll tell you, that kind of stuff happens all the time in our world today. And so at this point, dying on the cross means nothing to them. And their minds are going to be changed. Let's go to Matthew 27, 50. 
Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top, of the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. The ones who could mock him and spit on him and basically look at this as being a joke, right? And, and being so callous that the cross meant nothing to them would literally see this take place and realize that the cross meant something. Something is different here. One of the things I, I get as I read this and I think about how cold-hearted they are, this is proof that those with either a wrong understanding or a wrong viewpoint can change. Uh, there were many who would remain unbelievers. There were others who would accept, the, they would accept and glory in the cross. And I wonder how many, especially the centurion, I wish I had more information, I wonder how many of them had a totally different viewpoint of the cross, crucifixion, all of that in general after the resurrection of Christ. Initially, the soldiers, they see uh, Christ as a form of mocking entertainment. And guys, that still happens today uh, by a number of people. And so they looked at Jesus and the cross really as a form of entertainment. But I begin to think about that. What about entertainment today in the cross and Christ? I think that's another issue specifically in our culture today probably more so than we had in the first century, but many today do look at Christ or they look at the cross really as a way of entertainment, specifically in what we call worship. And that's because today the majority of churches literally will cater to what it is that the people and what the people want. And what they have done is, is they've really turned worship into an inward focused event, really designed to create church growth, not to not designed to create spiritual growth. It's really it's really become a, what does worship have to offer to me? What can worship cater to me? For them, for many people, the cross and Christ is really nothing than another form of entertainment that takes place on Sunday morning. Not really a whole lot different than the soldiers who were using the, cro uh, the, cro the cross and Christ as a form of entertainment. What was God's perspective? We could cover a lot here, but we'll try to keep it fairly short. God saw what took place, and He saw justification being carried out. And this justification came by the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 8, and 9, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. That's God's perspective of what the cross meant of what it meant for Jesus to hang and to die on that cross, to pay our penalty on that cross. Isaiah 53, 5, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. What, does, what did God see when He looked at the cross? He saw Jesus willingly dying upon a cross as an atonement for our sins, and it satisfied Him. Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see of the travail of His soul 
and he shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear the iniquities. God has an accurate and correct viewpoint of what the cross was, what it meant, what it meant for humanity. It's when Jesus became our propitiation, our sin offering. He did what we could never do. He turned God's, God's wrath away from those who would obey the gospel. 1 John 4, verse 9, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God had a correct understanding from the very beginning of what was going to take place. And I think for many of us, even though it's hard to fully understand the whys and the hows of all of that taking place for justification, God fully understood it. Jesus also, He probably had the closest view of the cross. He's the one hanging upon it. He saw the cross as a way to demonstrate submission. I think it would have been very hard for any of us to willingly submit to what Jesus would go through. Not just the mocking, not just the scourging, not just having people spit upon your face, not just the embarrassment, not just being treated as the lowest of the low and as somebody who had done something wrong. And going from the high of His ministry excelling and everyone coming to the point where they were cheering for Him to turning on Him and literally screaming, crucify Him. Nobody wants to die like that, but he had to go through all of that. And it was how he learned obedience. It was through the cross. Hebrews 5, 7, and 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and was heard, was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect... He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. If you think about the cross, specifically within the first century, it was an emblem of physical submission, right? The Roman Empire is in charge, and I'm going to physically submit to their carrying out of my crucifixion. A lot of people have different things when they look at a cross. If I were to look at a, a necklace with a cross, a shirt with a cross... Not to talk about all your scruples if you have a scruple with people wearing crosses on their shirts or their necklaces. What do you see when you look at the cross? Because as I sit and I think about the cross and I think about what Jesus did, I'm not so much focused on, as bad as it is, the physical submission of Christ to the Roman government to hang on that cross. What I see is the emblem as, a, as, a, as an emblem, of, the cross as an emblem of spiritual submission. Christ first being the example of one who would submit himself to the will of God, but that cross also being the emblem that we submit ourselves also to the will of God. No, I don't have a scruple with people wearing shirts with crosses on it or necklaces on it, or I don't have one or do that, but when I see a cross, it brings something to my mind. And my, my thought process is it's, there, it's the emblem of submission, but not so much the physical submission and the death on the cross, it's more so that Jesus was that example of submission to the Father's will. 
It was through this cross also that people saw him submitting to the Father's will. In Matthew 26, 39, And he went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. For Jesus to say that, and for anyone to think that he couldn't have stopped this at any time, they're mistaken. Jesus at any time could have stopped it. He could have stopped it at any time, but he had to be that sacrifice, that willing sacrifice. And it's not a sacrifice if he's being forced to do it. He could have stopped this, but that wasn't the Father's will. Listen to Matthew 26, 53 and 54. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. I'm not going to go back and spend any time on it, but in the Old Testament we have an example of one angel killing 185,000 men. Like that. One angel. And he says, I could have 12 legions of angels. So don't think for one second he couldn't have stopped this. But then again, if he would, if he would have stopped this, again, how would the Scriptures have been fulfilled? The Old Testament was pointing to the fact there's a Messiah coming. He's coming. He's going to willingly die for man's sins. Jesus knew He had to carry this out. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy. He had to be sacrificed for our sins. And don't look at it as for the sins of mankind, for your sins, for my sins. If it was just me on this earth, He would have done the same thing. He still would have sacrificed Himself if there was just me, if there was just you. He could have stopped it at any time, but he wouldn't have. And so he endured the suffering and being laughed at and mocked and spit on. Hebrews 12, 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He humbled himself at the cross. Jesus was literally hanging upon the cross. He had the closest view of the cross out of anybody. What did he see? He saw his submission to God's will. He saw the humility that came through him being laughed at and mocked and spit upon and all that could happen. Philippians 2.8, And being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Godhead, the Godhead had a view of the cross which man could never fully comprehend. There are things I struggle with in compre comprehending. Not only, not only why it was carried out the way that it was carried out, but what the thought processes were. And I can never have a complete understanding of that, but the Godhead did. And Jesus did. Jesus did as, a, as part of the Godhead. So what's our perspective when we think about the cross? Well, it's going to vary a lot. I think sometimes it varies depending on where we are. But I'll give you some basics that will not change. We see salvation through the cross. There's no salvation apart from the cross, not for the faithful Christian. Ephesians 1, 6-10, To the praise and the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood. On the cross, guys. The forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time He might gather together one in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven 
and which are on earth, even in Him. You know when he says, gather together in one? You know that it's only because of the, of the cross that we could have both Jew and Gentile in one group? It's only because of the cross. There is no Jew and Gentile as faithful followers of God without the cross. We see the value of the blood. 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You have specific religious groups out there today teaching that um, Jesus and God had no idea that they were going to turn their back on Him and He'd be crucified. And they say then, because that happened, the church was an afterthought. And it's from the very beginning of time, the plan of salvation was carried out exactly as was the intent of God's will from the beginning. That's why they were constantly pointing to the fact that there was a Messiah coming. The law of Moses was great, but the problem was never with the law of Moses. It was, it was man who couldn't keep the law of Moses. And so there had to be somebody, there had to be a sacrifice worthy of dealing with man's sin. And that happened when Jesus died on the cross, and it was His blood that made it, made it happen. We look at the cross and we, we look at sin being destroyed. At least we should. Romans 6, 5 through verses 9. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. Sin was destroyed by the cross, and our being planted together in the likeness of our death, we go back and look at Romans 6, 3-4, we talk about being buried in water, killing off that old man. We, in essence, we come out, we're a new man, we're a new creation in Christ. All because of the cross. We look at the cross, and as, as Christians, we should see a kingdom that was purchased through the ultimate sacrifice. Listen to Acts 20, verse 28, which is spoken there to the elders. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which He hath purchased with His own blood. Purchase, purchase the kingdom with His own blood. That doesn't happen without the cross. We as the children of God, the makeup of the church, we should be able to look at the cross and see God's power being carried out throughout that cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us, Christians, which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That goes all the way back to where we started, guys, with Paul. 
Paul had a correct understanding of the cross. And he knew that for many, yeah, it's complete foolishness. But that was Paul's focus. That's, that was Paul's desire. And as we talk about Paul going out and trying to reach the lost, I guess we should then try to address the perspective of the lost. What do they see when they look at Christ, when they look at the cross, when they look at, at us as Christians who believe in all that the Scriptures teach? Well, they see foolishness oftentimes. Right? You're following tradition. You're following superstition. Uh, you're weak. You need a crutch. That's what they see when they see the emblem of the cross. You come out with a shirt on, with a cross on, and somebody sees it, and they're like, oh, he's a Christian. He's following family tradition. He's following superstition. Whatever it is they, they, they want to believe. Again, go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Let me say this. That's why they're perishing. It's foolishness to them. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. And how can they? Not at least at that state of mind that they have right then. We have examples of others who've changed. He goes on, But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. That's being... None of us were born saved and stayed saved our whole life. Every one of us was in this position where at one point we had to come to the realization either it's foolishness or it's logical, and a decision will be made. And there are many today who are lost, and their perspective of the cross, their perspective of Jesus, it varies. But for many, it just seems illogical. It seems dumb. It seems ignorant. And even though that's what they think, we preach the message anyways. That's what Paul was doing. 1 Corinthians 1, 22, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Again, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. I want to point something out. Paul, we have examples of preaching both Jews and Greeks, but I'll tell you this. Paul realized the difference in his target audience. And so Paul, he would modify his approach based on that. And I only say that because when we talk about the lost, we've got people who are religious and they're lost, and we have people who are not religious and they're lost, right? You've got people who are lost in multiple religious groups. You've got people who are atheists, they're agnostics, whatever. And all of their souls are valuable, and every one of them is lost. And for whatever reason, they're, they have a different stumbling block. Paul did an adequate job of going to where they were and using where they were to get them to an understanding of the cross. It's valuable for us as Christians to be able to do that. I think the lost, when they look at the, the cross, when they look at Christ, it could be summarized as this. The reason they think it's foolishness is simply because they don't understand. And there's a reason they don't understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Let me pause for a minute. Where would I find out about the things given to me by the Spirit of God. That would be in the inspired Word, wouldn't it? He goes on, For they are foolishness unto Him. Why? Because they don't know the things that were revealed to us by the Spirit of God. Neither can He know them. Why? Because they don't know what was revealed to us by the Spirit of God. They're not studying the Scriptures. They don't know the Scriptures. And then He says, Because they are spiritually discerned. Why does the cross seem dumb to many people today? Because those things are spiritually discerned. Why does Christ and what He taught us to do and, and the standard of morality that we're given, why does that seem dumb to many? 
Because those things are spiritually discerned. And they're not going to the source. They're not going to what was revealed by the Spirit. And so to them, it doesn't make any sense. I get that. I get when I deal with somebody and I talk with somebody and they say, it doesn't make sense to me. And my thought process is, is because it's spiritually discerned. And if you don't know the Word and if you don't study the Word, you can't comprehend the Word. And if you can't comprehend the Word, how could you ever comprehend the message of the cross? How could you ever comprehend the message and the intent of why Jesus came and had to die on the cross? That only comes through spiritual discernment. It's this cross which is really the heart of all that we teach and that we hope. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so I guess really the question for each of us is, and it's going to depend on where we are, what is our view of the cross? And again, that question is a loaded question. For each of us, that's something we really ought to consider. What do we, what do we consider, what do we think of when we think about Christ, when we think about the cross? I hope if you're watching this online, I hope you've gotten a little bit of a greater understanding about what it is that Jesus did for us. And I hope that if you're not a Christian, that would be of utmost importance to you. If you're here, the same thing. If you're not a Christian, it's extremely important. And it's not complicated to become a Christian. I would urge you each to go to your scriptures. But the examples we have is they were taught about Jesus and who He was and why He came so that they would have faith. Hebrews 11.6 they needed to understand that He was the Messiah uh, or they were going to die in their sins. They needed to uh, repent of their sins just as they were commanded, Luke 13, 3 and 5, and to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then finally to be immersed in water. And you can go back and look at Mark 16, 15 and 16, and Romans 6, 3 and 4, and 1 Peter 3, 21, and Galatians 3, 26, 20. All of these passages talking about the final act and getting into Christ, being a new creation happening through a burial in water for the remission of sins. Acts 2, verse 38. And if you've not done that, you're not yet a Christian. But you need to be. If you're here and you are a Christian, I would ask you to go back and consider for just a few moments, what is your current thought on the cross? If there's a way that we can assist you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.